0: Last time we saw that the messianic kingdom was offered to Israel at the time of the first coming of Christ. But although many individuals accepted him, the nation as a whole rejected him. John one eleven 11 and 12 says, He came to his own, that's Israel, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. If Israel had accepted Jesus as their king, he would have been able to establish the kingdom that very year. However, because they rejected him, the kingdom was postponed for 2,000 years. Because that generation rejected him as their king, saying, we will have no king over us but Caesar, God rejected them from possessing the kingdom. This did not mean that the kingdom would never be established, for the kingdom is based on God's unconditional covenants with Abraham and David. It will happen. It just meant that Christ's generation could not receive it. The prophecies will be literally fulfilled, although delayed 2,000 years. But delay is not denial. This is our next key to Bible prophecy. The Messianic Kingdom was postponed 2,000 years because Israel rejected Jesus as her Messiah King and rejected the new covenant he offered them in his blood. Instead of receiving the kingdom, Israel came under judgment, being scattered to the nations for 1,900 years. The fact that Israel is back in her land now, on center stage again, is a major sign that we're in the end times, that God is preparing the way for the establishment of his kingdom. After describing how Israel had rejected him, Jesus said in Matthew twenty-one forty-three, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. He was predicting there would be a future generation who will be spiritually qualified to possess the kingdom. This postponement is like Israel's failure to possess the promised land because of unbelief. The promised land is a type of the kingdom. After receiving salvation through the blood of the Passover lamb, God's plan was for Israel to possess the land within a year. But because of unbelief, they rejected God's offer of going into the land, and as a result, they had to wander in the wilderness for 40 years before a new generation could finally enter in and possess it. Thus, there was a delay of 40 years, but eventually they did possess the promised land. Likewise, Jesus died as our Passover lamb in A.D. 33, and had Israel believed in him, she could have possessed her promised kingdom, even in that same year, but because of unbelief, she was unable to. Instead, Israel had to wander in the wilderness of the nations for almost 2,000 years. However, soon she will possess the kingdom, for Jesus, the greater than Joshua, is going to come and lead them into the promised messianic kingdom. Understanding the postponement of the kingdom is a key to understanding how the New Testament harmonizes with Old Testament prophecy, so that we do full justice to both. To be consistent with Old Testament prophecy, Jesus had to offer the kingdom to Israel. But the prophecies of the messianic kingdom were clearly not fulfilled by the spiritual kingdom that Jesus actually established through the church. So, the messianic kingdom has not yet been established. Now, God's faithfulness to his word requires that he does establish this kingdom and he will fulfill these promises when he returns, as the New Testament confirms in Revelation 20, for example. Therefore, the kingdom has been postponed due to Israel's unbelief. Meanwhile, God inserted the church age, an age which had been a mystery hidden in God, as the New Testament describes it, so that salvation might go to the Gentiles. The church receives all the spiritual blessings of the new covenant which the prophets had predicted for the Messianic age, which Hebrews 6.5 described as the powers of the age to come. Thus, the postponement of the kingdom is the only way to uphold the faithfulness of God and the literal interpretation of scripture. The only alternative is to spiritualize the prophecies and say that the church has replaced Israel, and the church age is the fulfillment of the kingdom prophecies, but this makes God both unfaithful and a liar. So now we have the correct solution to the major challenge of prophetic interpretation of how we reconcile the difference between the Old Testament expectation of a Messiah who comes to reign over the earth and the New Testament revelation of a suffering Messiah bringing personal salvation. First, when Jesus came the first time, He fulfilled the first set of prophecies about the suffering Messiah establishing the new covenant in his blood. But he was not able to fulfill the other set of prophecies of the glorious Messiah reigning on earth because the kingdom is based on the Abrahamic covenant with Israel. And so is centered on Israel and so Israel must accept her king for this kingdom to be established. Second, uh, therefore, instead of the messianic kingdom, God brought in the church age, which has a special emphasis on salvation going out to the Gentiles through the gospel. Thirdly, we can say that nevertheless, Jesus will still fulfill the prophecies of the glorious Messiah by establishing the messianic kingdom at his second coming, when Israel will receive him as her king. As Jesus said to the leaders of Israel in Matthew 23, he said, How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate, for I say to you from now on you will not see me uh, until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The church age is not the fulfillment of these Old Testament prophecies, so we don't have to change or spiritualize them. They will literally come to pass in the millennium as required by God's faithfulness. So the church age of the New Testament does not contradict the Old Testament prophecies of the messianic kingdom, for the kingdom has been postponed until the church age is over. This is a balanced view that gives due importance and validity to both the Old and New Testaments, and to both Israel and the church. In accepting all the glorious things the New Testament says about the church, we must not throw away all the great things God says he will do for Israel. However important the church is, we're only a part of God's overall plan. God will fulfill his plan for Israel, according to the prophets, and he will also fulfill his plan for the church, according to the apostles. This also answers the objection of Orthodox Jews to the Messianic claims of Jesus, that he did not establish a kingdom of peace on earth when he came, in accordance with the Messianic prophecies, and so they say he can't be the Messiah. Well, he did fulfill the first set of prophecies and obtained our salvation, which was the hardest thing for him to do. But he could not establish the kingdom at that time because Israel rejected him as the Messiah King. However, one day Israel will turn to him in faith and call upon him and he will return and establish his kingdom. Next, we will see exactly when the grace period for Israel ran out so that it was then impossible for that generation to receive the kingdom. In the Gospels, Jesus presented himself to Israel as their Messiah, proving this by many miracles. He came against increasing opposition and rejection by Israel's leaders, which came to a head in Matthew 12 when they said he was demon-possessed. And some believe that Israel was cut off at this time, which was before the cross. But in Matthew 12, he also warned them that they were in danger of the unforgivable sin, of rejecting the witness of the Holy Spirit. And this was not yet complete until the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost. We also saw that the kingdom was still offered to Israel after Pentecost in Acts chapter 3. Well, there's a parable in Luke 13 that tells us exactly when Israel was actually cut off. It's the parable of the fig tree, and it's very important, because Jesus referred to it again, the parable of the fig tree, in his Olivet Discourse on the End Times. In Luke 13:5, Jesus warned Israel of coming judgment for rejecting him. He said, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. To illustrate this, he gave them the parable of the fig tree in verse 6, and he began telling them this parable. A man had a fig tree, which had been planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it, and did not find any. The man is Jesus. The fig tree is the nation of Israel, and the vineyard is the land of Israel. And he was looking for the fruit of faith, but he found none. Verse 7 says, And he said to the vineyard keeper, which is the Father God, Behold, for three years... Jesus' ministry was a bit over three years. Behold, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? Well, Jesus' ministry was for three and a half years. So this took place three years into his ministry, which was six months before the cross. He had still found no faith among the leadership, and so he asked his father to cut the tree down and remove it from the land, because it was using up the ground but not fulfilling its purpose. Verse 8 says, And he, that's the father, answered and said to him, Let it alone, sir, for this year, too, until I dig around it and put in fertilizer, and if it bears fruit next year, fine, but if not, cut it down. The father's answer was to give the fig tree, that's Israel, one more year, one more year of grace before executing judgment. In that time, they will fertilize it, giving it every chance to bear fruit. If it responds, then all is well, but if not, then after that year, Jesus will cut Israel off, resulting in her being expelled from the land. Now, three years plus one year is four years. Jesus' ministry was three and a half years, so this extra year of grace ended six months after the cross. In that year, Israel was fertilized with the sign of Jonah and the Pentecostal outpouring of the Spirit and the preaching of the apostles, but she still didn't repent. In such a case, the Father released Jesus to cut the fig tree down. Therefore, Israel must have been officially cut off spiritually by Jesus six months after the cross for not bearing the fruit of faith. In turn, this resulted in her destruction and removal from the land by the Romans in AD 70, as Jesus had predicted on other occasions also. This cutting off of Israel six months after the cross was such an important event that it must have been clearly recorded in Scripture. Indeed it is, in Acts 7, which describes Stephen's speech and martyrdom. His speech was not a gospel message. It's the speech of a prosecuting attorney pointing out all the times that Israel had disobeyed God and postponed God's plan. It's exactly what you'd expect at a judicial cutting off of Israel, an expose of Israel's sin, using historical examples as illustrations of the sin of that generation. Stephen's conclusion is in Acts 7, 51 to 53. He said, You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the Righteous One, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. He basically said, You're guilty. Then when they picked up stones and killed Stephen, the first Christian martyr, they were affirming their rejection of Christ in the very same place where he was crucified. By this action they confirmed that they were ripe for judgment, and so they were cut off. At that point Stephen said in verse 56, Behold, I see the heavens opened up, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. This is Jesus, the judge, standing to execute judgment, cutting Israel off from her place of favor for a season. Romans eleven seventeen to 25 talks about this judgment when it speaks of the natural branches of Israel being broken off because of unbelief. At this point, at the end of Acts 7, the transition from the age of Israel to the age of the church was completed. Although the church had already began, it was still entirely Jewish. This official cutting off of Israel is a key turning point in Acts, the signal for the gospel to go out from Jerusalem to the rest of the world. In fact, immediately after Stephen's death, we read in the very next verse, Acts 8.1, And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. This was the first moment when the gospel went out beyond the Jews. Because in Acts 8, Philip went to the Samaritans. They were half-Jews. And they got saved, and they received the Holy Spirit. Then in Acts 9, God raised up the apostle to the Gentiles. And in Acts 10, the gospel went to the Gentiles for the first time, showing that God was receiving the Gentiles on the same basis as the Jews. And this showed that we were now in the new age of the church, with national Israel cut off from that place of favor as God's representative. Now God hasn't finished with Israel, because God will turn back to Israel and anoint her again once the church age is over. When Jesus was asked to give the signs of the end of the age, which is a technical term for the tribulation, he said, in answering that, in Matthew 24:32, he said, Now learn the parable of the fig tree. When its branch has become tender and put forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So you too... Also, when you see all these things, recognize that he's near, right at the door. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now these things that he's talking about are the events of the tribulation that he's just been describing. They knew that he was referring to the parable of the fig tree in Luke 13, where he had predicted that Israel, the fig tree, would be cut down and removed from the land. Now he was saying that that's not the end of the story, for the fig tree will rise again in the land, in the end times. And when it does, you will know that you're in the end times and the tribulation is near. You see, prophecies of the tribulation have Israel back in the land. So, in the time before the tribulation, it's necessary for the stage to be set for the final act of this age. Jesus went on to say that the generation that sees the fig tree will not all pass away before the tribulation ends. In other words, Jesus will return within a man's lifetime of 1948, when Israel the fig tree was reborn as a nation in the land, after having been scattered for 1900 years. Jesus also described the imminent fall of Israel and her rise again near the end of the age in Luke 21, verse 20 to 24. In verses 20 to 23, he warned of days of vengeance or judgment when the Roman armies would destroy Jerusalem and bring great distress to the land. Uh, And that was fulfilled in AD 70. Then in verse 24, he said, They, that's Israel, will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive into all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles, until the times of the Gentiles, the times of Gentile dominion, are fulfilled. Israel was indeed scattered to the nations for 1900 years, and the Gentiles had dominion over Jerusalem. But notice Jesus said until. So he predicted that these times of Gentile dominion over Jerusalem would come to an end. And they did in 1967, when Israel recaptured historic Jerusalem, another major end-time marker. So not only have the prophecies of Israel's fall been fulfilled, but also the prophecies of her restoration are being fulfilled in her rebirth in 1948 and the recapture of Jerusalem in 1967. This proves that God has not finished with Israel, but still plans to fulfill all his promises to her. Her natural restoration is a sign of her future spiritual restoration in preparation for the messianic kingdom. The rebirth of Israel is also a strong indication that we're living very near the end of the age. In fact, the next verses of Luke 21 immediately start to describe the events in the tribulation, leading up to the second coming of Christ. So what we've seen then is how God fulfills the promises. First of all, He came to fulfill the salvation promises. And when He comes again, He will fulfill the kingdom promises. Now, God knew that Israel would reject his offer of the kingdom, so he was ready to respond to that. In the meantime, instead of establishing the messianic kingdom, God brought in the mystery age, or the church age. Therefore, the postponement of the restoration of the kingdom to Israel and the introduction of the church age is no basis for saying that God has finished with Israel and will not fulfill his original purposes for her. Romans 11 confirms this. Paul wrote this vital chapter to show that despite Israel's unbelief, which resulted in the church age of Gentile salvation, God will still be faithful to his promises to Israel and establish the messianic kingdom through her. He maintains the balance between the present church age, with its emphasis on salvation going out to the Gentiles, and the future restoration of Israel in the kingdom age, which will also release fullness of blessing on the Gentiles. In verse 1, he says, in Romans 11, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. Verses 11 to 12, he asks, I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now, if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? Israel has transgressed and stumbled by rejecting the Messiah, but she has not fallen in such a way that she will not rise up again. God even worked her transgression for good, for instead of the kingdom being established, salvation now has been released to the Gentiles in the church age, where Jew and Gentile are equal in the body of Christ, so we can enjoy God's riches in Christ. He says if their failure brought riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness. Thus in the future, God will restore Israel to her fullness, which will release even more riches to the world in the messianic kingdom. Verse 15 confirms this. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? In verses 18 to 22, Paul warns the Gentiles not to be in pride over Israel by saying that God has finished with her. He warns that just as God cut Israel off, he will also cut the Gentiles off and graft Israel back in. Verses 22 and 23 say, Otherwise you Gentiles will also be cut off, and they, Israel, also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. So when Israel returns to faith, they'll be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. Verse 25 and 6 say, a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and so all Israel will be saved. During this church age, because of her rejection of Christ, national Israel has been under a judicial blindness that is partial and temporary until the fullness of the church age Gentile harvest has been gathered in then all Israel will be saved and remain saved through the establishment of the messianic kingdom. Verses 28 and 29 say that even when Israel is in unbelief, she's still God's elect nation. It says, from the standpoint of the gospel, they're enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, of God's election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers, for the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Finally, verse 30 and 31 say, For just as you Gentiles once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, Israel's disobedience, so these now also have been disobedient, that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy. Again, Paul predicts that God will restore Israel and show her mercy and the mainly Gentile church is called to be part of this. Literally, it says, through your mercy, they may obtain mercy. We are called to show mercy to Israel, both spiritually through prayer and sharing the gospel, and practically. God will use our loving witness to help them to reach the place of obtaining mercy from God. Unfortunately, the Church has not fulfilled this calling very well and has developed theologies which have encouraged an apathetic or even antagonistic attitude towards God's people Israel. Therefore, sadly, the official Church's teaching has historically been a major cause of anti-Semitism and persecution against Jews. Even today, Christian anti-Semitism is widespread and manifested, first of all politically, as anti-Zionism, and secondly, theologically, as replacement theology. First, on the issue of Zionism. What is Zionism? Zionism simply supports the right of Israel to exist as a nation in her land. So an anti-Zionist is against the state of Israel and denies its right to exist. This is a form of anti-Semitism. For example, if you were to say, I'm not anti-British, I've got nothing against them, but I want the United Kingdom to be wiped off the map. We would see through that. Clearly, you're not just anti-Britain, you're anti-British. If you are against Israel as a nation, you are also against the Jewish people. Now, Israel is like any other nation. It may do some things wrong, and it's not above criticism, but that does not change the fact that God has chosen her and he's going to bring his purposes for her to pass. Second aspect of anti-Semitism we've previously warned against, replacement theology, which denies that Israel has a distinct identity and guaranteed future destiny as God's covenant people. Replacement Theology says that the church has now permanently replaced Israel in the purposes of God, as God's people, claiming that the church is now spiritual Israel, or the Israel of God. It rejects the plain meaning of the Bible, and it is an attack against the integrity of God. We must always be on guard against anti-Semitism. Gentiles and Gentile nations will be judged primarily according to how they treat Israel. Speaking of Abraham and his seed, God says in Genesis 12.3, I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. Literally, the one who treats you with contempt. Those who teach replacement theology are in great danger of this curse because they say that Israel is as nothing now and has no right to exist. Replacement theology is not the teaching of the Bible, which says that although Israel as a whole is in unbelief concerning the Messiah, She has not lost her place as the elect nation of God. Therefore, the day is coming when she will repent and believe in Jesus as her Messiah, and she will receive the messianic kingdom, when all God's covenant promises to her will be fulfilled. Therefore, God has not finished with Israel. In fact, she's the only nation with a divinely guaranteed future. Whatever happens, she is sure to survive, for she alone has a covenant with God. She is still the apple of his eye. In Jeremiah 31:35, God gives the strongest possible guarantee for Israel's future. He says, Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that the waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel also will cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out below, then I will also cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. So, whatever blessing God has for the church does not nullify what God has already promised to Israel. He is still the God of Israel. He will still fight for Israel and judge those who come against her. The Israel issue is very important because God's character and faithfulness is at stake. He has a wonderful purpose for the church and a wonderful purpose for Israel. It's going to become increasingly important in these end times as to where you stand on Israel, with the spirit of this world, which infiltrates the church world, becoming increasingly anti-Semitic and anti-Israel. God is with Israel, so you will either be for or against God. It is very much a defining issue. Your position on this will determine to a great extent whether you are working for or against God's purposes. If the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts, then since God loves Israel, we should have that same love in our hearts, if we're born again, of course. We should be so grateful to Israel for giving us the Bible and our Saviour Jesus Christ. We have a great debt to repay. Part of God's calling on the church is to pray for the salvation of the Jews, that the veil of unbelief will be removed from their eyes, so that they will see Yeshua is their Messiah. The Bible says there will be a great turning to the Lord in Israel. More and more Jews are becoming believers in Jesus, but there's a long way to go. Also, we're to pray for the restoration of the nation of Israel, for this is God's purpose, as revealed in the Bible. They face great challenges in what's happening right now, and they will go through a lot of difficult times in the future. We are also to pray for the peace, the shalom of Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, the true capital of the earth, and the center of great spiritual warfare.